1: Hello and welcome to the uh, emergency cast we've all been waiting for it's all pleasure no business <laughs> <laughs> it's <laughs> it's, weird. it's bye bye boris with me uh for this very special edition is Ian Dunt. hello ros taylor hello and Andreu. hello you know who they are um <laughs> ian where at the end of yesterday's recording, I believe we were at thirty six resignations. Uh, we're now at fifty seven, which includes go sacking, uh, so not 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 technically a resignation. Um, a lot happened after we recorded the uh, the episode. What made the difference, do you think, or what, or, or simply what delighted you personally?
2: I mean, all of last night was an unmitigated delight. Where I was actually reduced to a kind of hysterical wreck by about ten o'clock where every new bit of news just made me laugh like a maniac. And I think the fact that he sacked Gove at the time, <laughs> I mean, I was quite a few drinks in by then, but at the time was probably the funniest thing that I had ever seen in my life. Because <laughs> it was such a like late night drunk energy of like, I'll oh, fucking take a lot of you. I'll oh, fucking a lot of you. It was just...
1: Amazing scenes. Absolutely yes. amazing scenes. Throw throwing a sacking into the sea of resignations. <laughs> <laughs> Seemed
2: unwise. <laughs> it didn't seem terribly sensible, did it? And I think at the end of it, I, I presume the thing that sort of finished it is just people looking around and going, that there is a point at which you don't actually have a government because too many people have resigned. So how are you actually going to make this function? He didn't need to... You know, people were talking about how is he going to fill all these PPS roles. PPSs are basically a nothingness. They they are essentially bad carriers. Sometimes there's a little bit more to it than that, but ultimately they're they're bad carriers, and you don't really need to fill those roles. We could get rid of the whole concept of PPS tomorrow, and the British government would be none the worse for it. But on the on the medium sort of junior ministerial and senior level. You, you kind of can't function after a certain point. And I presume it was that fact that ultimately led, you know, the, the people that were speaking to him this morning to just go like, you literally cannot carry on even if you think you can.
1: Well, I, I mean, respect to Michelle Donilon, uh, who we were trying to introduce listeners to yesterday. <laughs> and, and, re- and resigned before 9am. So basically a little over a day in the post. And Zaha, didn't resign, but was calling on him to go. And I couldn't, I couldn't really process it. Like, I just couldn't really... It's it's definitely the most extraordinary sort of 48-hour period in the lifetime of this podcast, even including all the kind of Brexit votes and the fall of Theresa May. Yeah. Um, Because it just seemed incomprehensible. Like, you know, that someone just gets a job and then they resign. And, you know, and people go and tell Boris Johnson to leave and he goes, no, and sacks one of them. And it was, like, quite... I don't think my heart could have taken uh, him him staying on any longer, frankly. (laughs)
3: Can I interrupt with a tweet from from Giefer Hofstadt? (laughs) Oh, wow. Um, Boris Johnson's reign ends in disgrace, just like his friend Donald Trump. The end of an era of transatlantic populism? Let's hope so.
1: Mm. Well, Alex, it did seem, you know, it did seem very Trumpian. I mean, not fully Trumpian, you know, because there's been no coup. You know this this idea that he just the people were coming to tell him to go as people went and told Thatcher to go and people went and told Nixon to go and what happens is when a when a bunch of senior people you know send a delegation and they go right you can't go on you kind of accept okay I'm not happy about it but that's that mm-hmm. and when and and so yesterday evening there was a real possibility that he was uh, as he once accused of Gordon Brown of doing of chaining himself to the radiator.
3: Yes, and he didn't really help himself much with that, uh, <laughs> uh, not least with that Gove sacking, because the noises coming out of Downing Street in the afternoon was, it's business as usual, we're going to appoint a whole new suite of uh, uh, cabinet ministers. They had, at that point, 46 vacancies, and by midnight, when they had promised they would make loads of appointments, they had 47 Because, because he decided to revenge fire Michael Gove. So he wrote down his own, his own demise. He didn't actually do anything unconstitutional. He just threatened to do unconstitutional mm. stuff or refused to confirm that he wouldn't do unconstitutional stuff. So the language was very Trumpian. Uh, this idea that the mandate was personally his and no one in his party uh, yes. had a, a right to question it. All of that was very Trumpian, but he didn't actually do anything.
1: Roz, there was a rumour yesterday that he was going to try and call a snap election are you sad that you didn't get to see uh, <laughs> boris boris johnson's disintegrating tory party uh, go into a general election and get smashed to the atoms
0: well yeah a part of me is sad about that because that would have been fun uh, on one level uh, on the other hand you know the queen has been spared Uh, a very difficult decision, which he would have had to make as to whether to uh, allow him to call an election by himself or not. That would have been constitutionally, as David Allen Green kept pointing out repeatedly yesterday, um, extremely interesting, uh, but it hasn't come to pass. So uh, yeah, I mean, part of me did, you know, with, with Johnson, there's this awful thing where, you know, of course you loathe the guy, but you also just wanted to see how far he would go because... You, the the pers- his force of personality is so great that you wanted it to play out in the most extreme way possible, just so that the mm. part- so that the country could show just how over this guy is. And that, I think, was the desire that, that a lot of us had. We, yeah, I'm glad he's resigned. Obviously, formally, I'm relieved he's resigned. You know, I came into the office this morning and I, I literally hugged one of my colleagues, which I would not normally do, but.
2: We can all confirm this. This is very unusual (laughs) behavior for Rod.
3: I'm,
0: I'm 100% British, Ian. And, (laughs) and, you know, I, I'm relieved that in, in a way. But also, yeah, you wanted it to play out because it has been such a melodrama. That you want him to be definitively killed. It's like Rasputin, you know. You 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 want to make sure the guy is finally dead because otherwise you fear he will pop up again. And indeed, this is what is happening today. Where, of course, there are suggestions that he wants to stay on until the autumn.
1: Yeah, well, this is an amazing plan. Uh, obviously, the idea of Boris Johnson as caretaker—a man not famous for taking care of anything, <laughs> countries, children. Nothing. Um, Ian, in, is this remotely tenable? If we're talking about the um, you know, the problem of who will serve, it's the idea that all these people who've resigned are just going to come back in and continue to work under Johnson until. And they said, probably, this is what I heard on the uh, Today programme, they said, I'll oh, probably be done by the Tory Party conference in October. We'll probably have a new leader then. <laughs> and it's like, it's July. And and, I mean, can you imagine how a government could function under somebody that they have all got rid of? It's like a a hated boss working out a three month's notice.
2: I can't comprehend how this would be allowed to take place. And the only possible thing you can imagine, and this is all just guesswork at the moment, obviously, given where we are, is that this was part of how they convinced him to do it. You know, to say, look, you've got these three months and, you know, we'll establish the legacy and we'll sell this picture of the, you know, the big decisions and we'll cement that in place. Because presumably one of the things that goes through his head, uh, as well as the ego, when he was refusing to move was, holy shit, Like, I'm going to be thought of as the worst prime minister in the modern period in terms of throwing away the majority, in terms of personal morality, in terms of, you know, letting the country sort of disintegrate. And then on the big things that he supposedly got right, Brexit and COVID, he sort of recognises that historically you can see that they will be considered two catastrophic handlings of crises and of mm. creating the first crisis in the first place. So he obviously is going to have, they all think about their, you know, their place in the history books at this point, and that will terrify him. So it would have given him a chance to do that. Thing is, given his behaviour over the last 48 hours or more, Surely they see the danger that he could think that that is just an opportunity for him to try and sneak around, try and achieve something with those last moments that he has there, something you know in order to stay in power. That would not mm. be, you know, outside of the realms of possibility given the behaviour of this man so far. So it's
1: a pretty dangerous scenario that we're looking at at the moment. On on legacy, you know, there's a mischievous suggestion that the reason he didn't go yesterday was because as of today he has been in office longer than Neville Chamberlain. Well, and that right there is a beautiful encapsulation of his career,
2: right? He goes through his career thinking that he's Churchill. And in the end, tries to stay in power as long as (laughs) Chamberlain.
3: He's only a few days away from Theresa May. And I don't think that's an inconsiderable factor in his mind, by the way, Mm. in trying to stay on as caretaker. I don't think he's actually childish and petty enough that this will be a consideration. I don't want to serve a term that's shorter than the person they deposed.
1: Alex, uh, you're a well-connected man, and you've been hearing sort of various rumours about how this plan might unravel. The one that's been uh, whizzing around Twitter just before we recorded was that Dominic Ra, uh, a lion among men, would, be, <laughs> would in fact be appointed caretaker prime minister possibly, possibly by this oh, evening. Um, is that something that you think has credibility?
3: Okay, so can we look at silver linings first? If Raab agreed to be caretaker prime minister, it would mean that he'd have to give up any ambition of running as a leadership candidate. So, you know, let's look at the positive side, first of all. Um, a, a caretaker government effectively goes into this weird mode of collective cabinet responsibility more than even usual in which they can't really make any major decisions they undertake not to commit huge finance they they're basically constrained to just keep things ticking over until a new uh prime minister takes over now in the current situation like with the new uh um the new cap on energy bills about to come in, uh, with the situation in Ukraine, with the situation in Northern Ireland, with with Scotland demanding a referendum, I don't think they can afford um, two or three months of a caretaker government, whether under Johnson or under Raab. Now, there are a couple of ways around this. So the 1922 committee, uh, the timing of this is in highly in its discretion. So the 1922 committee could compress the timetable for a new leadership election and have it done, say, in five or six weeks' time. The other thing they could do is they could simply appoint someone. Um, so they, under the rules, they don't have to go to um, the party membership at all if it is an uncontested candidacy so i suspect they will be casting around to see if they can find someone without further leadership ambitions that will accept to be appointed by the 1922 committee on a temporary basis as an uncontested sort of interim leader rather than caretaker um, th- there is a difference they they might appoint an interim leader that can that uh, an interim leader that can act fully or a caretaker leader that's constrained by all those conventions about not doing anything big, basically.
0: Yeah, I agree. That's totally untenable. And I think they will try to speed up the leadership election process, as you say. I mean, one of the problems is when you look at the people currently in post, Zahawi, Zahawi is trashed any credibility and reputation (laughs) in the last 48 hours that he had. How he can possibly serve as chancellor, even as a sort of inert chancellor who doesn't make major decisions, is beyond my comprehension. Would Sunak come back? I mean, how is that legitimate? I don't... don't, (laughs) Who is going to serve in this cabinet? And there were suggestions earlier uh, that that Theresa May might be persuaded to come back and preside, which of course would be the ultimate insult to Johnson until a new leader was elected. But I don't see how someone you know, reasonable, uh, who, who who can function as a decent PM on some level, uh, could possibly work with this cabinet that Johnson, the most recent iteration of the cabinet that Johnson has put in place.
1: Well, Ross, moving on from caretakers to the contenders, I mean, remarkably, uh, two people, two sort of experts, Camilla Cavendish and Fraser Nelson on today, were saying that Nadim Zahawi they thought was the most likely contender, uh, despite uh, perhaps some of his unwise life choices. Over the last 48 hours. Um, and um, my personal enemy, Suella Braverman, <laughs> told, uh, told Peston uh, that she wasn't resigning, um, but she would really like to be uh, the next prime
3: minister. She's now publicly backed by Desmond Swain, by the way. I just thought you ought to know that.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, neither, neither of those people will be the next leader. Um, I can be fairly confident. It's possible it might be Sunak. I can imagine that happening, I think penny more daunt might do people have said, Oh why hasn 't she stepped forward? Has she undermined her credibility by not standing by not resigning? Actually, I think the whole military training and you know you stay in post. Uh, and you do your duty until you have to step forward has been probably in her mind and that's what she will be hoping to play on. So I very much expect her to step forward and as we know, when the Conservative Party is in a difficult place and has just screwed up, it often turns to a woman to try and sort itself out uh, with greater or lesser degrees of success. So I think that she is a strong contender at the moment.
1: Starmer said the, the thing that we wanted him to say which is like it's not just about the guy at the top it's about the whole rotten party we need a fresh start for Britain now we obviously do do you feel like any of these people any of these contenders can restore the state of the party after this like um, really just unbelievable uh, 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 display of
0: bloodletting I think they can, to an extent, restore the state of the party. Whether they can win the confidence of the country is another issue. We've got to remember that Johnson has been like a lightning rod for dissatisfaction, for anger about the way the government behaves. What happens when you take away that lightning rod? Well you know, the lightning could well strike the house in a way that you weren't expecting Mm, mm. and you certainly don't want. And what we will see, I think, over the next few months is a very, very angry electorate who cannot just say, oh, it's Johnson anymore, and who will want serious change. And that is what that is the enormous challenge that the Conservative Party is facing now?
1: Because they might find out who put Boris Johnson in office in the first place.
0: Mm. <laughs> yeah, it might occur to them. Yeah, yeah.
3: Um, can, he... I, can I can interject with another funny? So Emily Thornbury is in Parliament right now, facing um, Suella Braverman, and she started her speech by saying, "What an honour it is to be facing the new Prime Minister." <laughs> <laughs>
1: I- Ian, what happens to the uh, what is laughably called the policy platform of, of this government? I mean things like the privatization of channel Four you know the dean doris's pet project i mean are, are some of these just going to um you know disappear or at least stall and need to be actively restarted? Everything will
2: now stall and then the new leader will decide what they're going to carry on with, and that'll be their big Choice. So the interesting thing, I mean, once I managed to stop laughing at the fact that Braveman wanted to be leader and started listening to her on the Today programme this morning, the interesting thing she was saying was nothing changes policy-wise. Like, you know, all we need to do is change the guy at the top. And then I'll just, and then she basically just made a list of policies, which were exactly what Boris Johnson, you know, we're going to stop the boats, we're going to attack woke, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, So from that you'd get, okay, so everything stays the same. Then you get those who are going to, you know, if they were to win, maybe Morden, maybe Tugendhat, maybe Wallace, it's hard to tell, would, who would probably change things quite fundamentally. and think, no, we need an overhaul that's something deeper than this. And you just wouldn't be able to guess what would stay and what would go. Behind all of that chitter chatter around sort of Funak and, and, you know, his letter sort of absurdly pointing towards fiscal disagreements is an actual sort of burning division in the Conservative Party that they haven't addressed or maybe just don't want to talk about, or maybe can't articulate, which is that they do not actually have an ideological position on the economy anymore. You know, they, they are not, they like to say, oh, we're Thatcherites, we're Thatcherites. Well, they're clearly not Thatcherites because their solutions to problems and things that are demanded of them, for instance, in cost of living, are not Thatcherite right solutions. They are, you know, spending money. They are not about sound finance, you know, sound fiscal management. It's not that at all. And so that, that really is the heart of the division and the way it's going to play out now is seeing which way they land on that issue. Sunak clearly wants to go for austerity again. I don't think even if putting aside how unwise that might be economically, politically, it's very different for David Cameron and George Osborne to say we need to sort out the finances when you are coming in against the Labour government that's been there for over a decade to when you've been in government for over a decade saying we've got to fight we've got to, you know, fix the national finances. So all of that is a really hard thing for them to work out and the big question is do you have big enough brains there to work out how that would operate. And I would suggest lightly that they absolutely do not.
1: So I want to pull back a bit uh, and think about, um, you know, the kind of pundit consensus in December 2019. There was, I don't remember anyone saying, you know, Labour have a very strong chance in the next election. There was this whole idea that that, that Boris had found this, uh, sorry, Johnson had found this kind of magic formula um, for a kind of hegemonic new coalition and it was a sort of version of like suppose, you know red toryism more active really into the leveling up track you know appealing to the new working class voters and the red wall etc 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 it didn't happen now is that because you had you know basic sunak in, in number 11 pulling in the other direction is it just that boris johnson is very lazy And could not be bothered to do what, you know, people like Matthew Goodwin or whatever, uh, or Dominic Cummings was saying, you know, could be done, which was to create this new, you know, new Tory party that left no room uh, for Labour for the coming years.
2: I think there's two parts to that, right? The the first part is his functional inadequacy. So he, it's actually, the centre is very strong in British politics. We're a hugely centralised country and the Prime Minister can do whatever the fuck they like. but. You do have to make things happen, you know, with these silos, with the departments. You have to get the SPADs in number 10 to be working closely with the SPADs and, you know, the education department to be working closely with the minister to try and force through change. You have to be very laser focused. That's what Thatcher was. That's what Blair was. You have to be laser focused in order to achieve your objectives and you have to know what it is very clearly and in a quite sort of granular level what you're trying to achieve. He just couldn't do that. He doesn't have the sensibility. He doesn't have the mindset. He doesn't have the sort of the sustained intellectual attention. So the actual project itself couldn't really go anywhere because he couldn't really say what it was. And he certainly didn't have the ability to see it through. Then the thing that really derailed him, because there was complete inertia really on that policy front, the thing that really derailed him was then the personal morality. And that personal morality, whether it was the party gate stuff, whether it was Barnard Castle, or that crucial moment with Patterson, where I think people noticed what the game was, that he needed to eradicate standards around Parliament because he himself had no standards. So the existence of a viable standard system was a direct threat to his continuing position at the top. That then was the thing that brought it all down. I think maybe if there'd been less inertia, it wouldn't have been as powerful. But ultimately, it was, the, it was the personal morality that brought him down, rather than the inability to see through the policy front. Certainly, as, in terms of just you threw something away, like having a majority of that size and mm-hmm. managing to throw it away in three years is one of the most astonishing self owns that we will ever see in British politics.
1: As Anthony as Seldon calls it, a, uh, the history of cell phones. Um, <laughs> Ross, looking back again to that, because um, we've been around long enough as a podcast, that, you know that we can actually we've been through these phases of of consensus of, of people going, well, this is this is the way it's going to be uh, for the foreseeable, and it, it often isn't. Do you think because the Tories' majority was so large that we missed the weakness of it? And you can, of course, talk about the pandemic, you can talk about various scandals, but but clearly, this whole idea that that, that swathes of the country were now solidly Tory and had abandoned Labour forever, turns out to be nonsense. So did we sort of collectively misread what was happening in that election?
0: Yeah, the political class lost its mind, basically. It was in thrall to an individual who was capable of seizing its attention uh, to the exclusion of anything else. And this is something that powerful men, sometimes in history, are able to do. And I was thinking last night, what would Boris Johnson be doing if he were in power 300 years ago? And we know what the hell he would be doing if he were in power 300 years ago. He wouldn't be sacking Gove. He'd be chopping his head off. Johnson is of that type. There are men, you should, they have always been men, I think with possibly Catherine the Great, but you know, they've basically always <laughs> been men, who come along and they exert such a political force of will that they are unstoppable for a while, and people have been hypnotized by johnson and that's why I say that we lost our minds a little bit, and all of us mm. did, and we thought that there was no other other way and it's happened before the great we we have been reminded that we must not let it happen again; we must not let one man's sheer force of personality drive our country into the mire, which is what he has done. He has trashed this country, and I am so angry about what he has done that, you know, my my relief that he is finally gone is very much tempered by just fury that we let this happen, that as a country we stood by and allowed him to do it.
1: Well, Tories, before he was, you know, before he replaced Theresa May, you know, a lot of Tories were voting for him reluctantly, you know, to get Brexit done or whatever, because they thought he had this kind of special Heineken power. But, you know, they knew, they had these reservations. They knew the kind of person he was. Now we've seen him become exactly the kind of person he was. And yet in the middle, there was this weird period where he was seen to have the the, uh, the vision and the commitment and the stamina to completely remake both the Tory party and the country, which now just seems like that's, that seems to me like a collective madness that you thought that this guy (laughs) was going to be the one that was going to sort of, you know, rejuvenate the towns of England and stake a claim to the kind of the working class voter, none of which happened. There wasn't really any reason to think that he, he could have done it. But there was no reason to think that he would do it. It's
0: because he tells people what they want to hear. And this is one of his, most, his biggest flaws. Johnson tells people exactly what they want to hear. And that means entails, inevitably, lying a great deal. That is how he has been able to perpetuate this myth for so long.
3: Just to blow my own horn a tiny bit, because I remember the live show we did just after the results of the election, and I was a dissenting view from that. I remember saying that a large majority carries its own dangers, that the person who would defeat Johnson was always going to be Johnson. When he overreached, and that with every overreach he got away with, he would try a little bit more, and eventually he would reach a tipping point. And I've been saying that for years now. The truth is that what, what he
2: has dabbled with over the last forty eight hours is truly and genuinely Trumpian. That was this kind of it might not be you know rushing, you know, to try and take the capital, but it is just tearing up the constitutional arrangements and seeing if by force of will you can stay there. What, what the difference is between him and Trump is that he couldn't take the public with him. And in those early days of his premiership, and even you know, during the pandemic and towards the tail end, it looked like he was able to do that. You know, remember those early by-elections where it looked like Labour weren't moving at all in the Red Wall, and it looked like he did really have this quite hypnotic effect. But that didn't happen. It did happen in the US. In the US right now, their democracy is at risk by virtue of the fact that a chunk of the electorate, a chunk of Republican support, and a big chunk, sticks with Trump, no matter how many lies he tells, no matter what he does. Here, that has not happened. He is not going today because cabinet secretaries or MPs have found it in their moral conscience to oppose him. He is going today because they recognise that the public turned against him. That is the absolutely key thing. I think after all these years that we've you know been sat in rooms and just sort of despairing at the direction of travel and, and for a lot of people just not seeing the, the sort of stark reality that is there in front of your face instead of the soothing words of charlatans. Actually, what's happened here is the public turned, the public turned against him, and that is a deeply, deeply reassuring thing to witness.
3: Trump maintained his emotional connection to the base, but he also maintained his connection of self-interest with the party because he um actually uh, put in measures for low taxation. He installed judges which were very conservative. And Johnson didn't do those things. Mm. Johnson thought he could coast on his emotional connection to the public without doing any of the conservative things that his colleagues wanted him to do. And that is a big part of why he lost uh, the confidence of his own party. One thing that gives me hope out of this whole sorry affair, and I, I completely echo, um, rose's sentiment. I, you know, I, I too feel profoundly angry today that this was ever allowed to happen and the damage that's been caused. But one thing that gives me a little bit of hope is that small events can change trajectories in a big way. I remember Pippa Crera first breaking um, Partygate, uh, Paul Brand with that video of Allegra Stratton, Noah Hoffman, a, a journalist five days into a job getting the pincher scoop, and then a retired civil servant, which is really what has caused this cascade, mm. a retired civil servant deciding to write a public letter saying, they're lying to you. And that fills me actually with a bit of hope, that a, a nudge here and a nudge there can can knock out, of course, even the largest of tankers.
1: Um, Ros, uh, before we wrap up, I'm going to take the hit here and try and look at um, the, uh, the the positive side of Boris Johnson's legacy. If you're being generous, right, I think you could you could grant him the vaccine rollout and support from Ukraine, both of which I think could as easily have been done by any other Tory prime minister, or indeed uh, any Labour prime minister. So they were, they were sort of like no-brainer achievements. I do think in the context of the Tory party at the moment, the, the fact that he even pays lip service to um, climate issues is something. The fact that he's not pro-austerity like Sunak is something. But then he never really backs this up. Like he just makes noises. Is there anything... Mm. Uh, Rise after you've basically um, made your views very clear. Is there is there is there anything that you can look at that would count as a legacy for Johnson?
0: No. He he serves as a warning as to what happens when you let yourself be enthralled by the force of a personality and you want to believe that someone is capable of uniting the country and the party. And you want so much to believe that, that you fall for someone like Johnson. Johnson brought us Brexit. That is Johnson's legacy. Brexit would probably not have happened without Johnson. Frankly, that is what he did to the country. That is the one of the worst things that he did to the country, and it will be his legacy.
1: So, Ian, do you think? I have a feeling that this is the sort of dramatic climax of this story that began on the twenty third of June, twenty sixteen. You know, with Johnson as its as its main character, and even though Brexit goes on, this Tory government will go on. Neither of those things are very popular. Both of those things have sort of lost energy and almost the thing that has guided the lifetime of this podcast so far. Do you feel that this is a sort of some kind of like narrative finale to a period uh, in British political history?
2: I mean, it definitely is, right? It definitely is. Because it was his period even when he wasn't prime minister. But we're only going to really know when we see who they pick. Because then the, the next question becomes, you know, the Tory party is an absolute fucking pieces right now. Just absolute pieces. It's shattered and shat- ideologically shattered. And they're going to have to, you know, probably very quickly, as, you know, as we've been discussing, you know, they're probably going to have to think, well, actually, we can't really afford to take that much time doing this. They're going to have to try and decide what the fuck is it that we are right now. And they will do that by virtue of the new leader, you know. And, and there will be people out there who I think the bigger threat are people who are much more sane. You know, the Tom hats and all of that. If you were to go down that avenue, then I think there's a perfectly viable chance for them to win the next election. But are they too far gone for that? Have they just, you're not supposed to use the Kool-Aid sort of metaphor anymore, but have they, have they just guzzled too much of it in order to, to retreat back to a politics that makes sense? So I'd like to think that this is the bookend of that, but there, there is a chance that it, it doesn't work out that way. We're about
1: to find out pretty soon. What I find remarkable is that Labour Party, at least in my sort of lifetime, my memory, is the Labour Party tears itself to pieces in defeat, which sort of makes sense. In defeat, in opposition, it's a very weak and unhappy place to be. And that's when you get these massive civil wars. And yet the Tory Party tears itself to pieces <laughs> when it's in power. Sometimes <laughs> when, it, when it has a huge majority, like as it did in, in 1990, as it does now and and it 's just it's, it's crazy to me that this is the most successful political party uh, in the Western world historically, and yet it routinely goes berserk and starts blowing itself up <laughs> when it 's in a position where it sort of has the power to do to do anything it 's like it 's both extremely adaptable and successful and insanely dysfunctional i don't I never really understand how that works. Mm.
0: It's the, it's the paradox of conservatism. You get into power because you know you're basically standing for things staying the same, but you also want to change things, and you end up just, you know, having a mind mindfuck. Um,
1: <laughs> this is again, I think you're quoting Anthony Zeldin. <laughs> um,
0: <laughs>
1: well, this, this has been uh, perhaps the greatest political mindfuck of, uh, of of my lifetime. <laughs> if, if, it does. It makes Margaret Thatcher's exit seem quite sort of, uh, you know, stately and mellow by comparison. <laughs> um, we will be back next week, perhaps sooner, depending on events. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Ian, Roz, and Alex. That was a was a joy. Thank you, guys. Group hug. We made it. We survived the Johnson years. <laughs> Bye. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed that, and why would you not? You might consider sending a few pounds our way via Patreon to enable us to produce more top-notch, cathartic, schadenfreude content. You'll get the regular podcast early without ads, plus merchandise and regular extra bits, including our mini-podcast, Oh God, What Else? Search Patreon, Oh God, What Now? podcast to find out more. Your support is always appreciated.